I'm Bethany, and I serve in the worship ministry. So today's scripture um, is from Matthew 3, 7 through 12. It says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance, and don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The ax is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear or that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I am. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with a fire that never goes out. This is God's word. <laughs> Amen. You can, uh, you can tell that Bethany reads to her kids a lot, huh? She has that, that mom reading cadence. <laughs> Thank you, Bethany. All right, setting this over here. Need more room? Here we go. All right, we're in Matthew chapter three. We've been making our way. We started at the very beginning, launching into our series on Matthew, uh, a series called The Kingdom Come, or Kingdom Come, The Gospel According to Matthew. And we now find ourselves... At, in the middle of chapter three. And uh, today actually marks our sixth week in the study of Matthew. So we've been going six weeks strong and we have two more weeks after this before we're gonna go ahead and take a pause on Matthew for just a little bit. And we're gonna hop over to a couple other series, including we're gonna go through the entire book of Jonah in four weeks. So a chapter, one chapter every Sunday for four weeks, and we're gonna look at Jonah and hopefully learn a little bit about not only Jonah's mistakes and his coming to the Lord and then kind of the way that it ends, which is kind of a funky way, but also look at, uh, look at how we can learn and discern from that as we try to minister in a culture uh, and in a place as exiles and strangers here. Um, and then you know, on September 10th, we'll be... Transporting right back into this series, we'll pick up where we left off, and then from that point on going into Matthew, we're going to be heading right toward the Beatitudes, and so we'll spend some time in the Beatitudes in the fall, and I'm excited about that. Um, Matthew's account of the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, it's one that's centered on the idea that Jesus is the long-awaited, long-promised, anointed one of God. He is the Messiah. And he has come to usher in the everlasting kingdom of God and to gather a people, a new humanity, who will adopt the Jesus way of life and spread the good news that Jesus has made it possible for humanity to once again walk in fellowship with God. And Matthew has already shown us how Jesus is the fulfillment of so many Old Testament prophecies. They looked ahead and they saw the one to come and that was Jesus. And Matthew was wanting us to see that and know that. And last week, we met a character named John the Baptist. He was a relative of Jesus, and he was conducting a very peculiar ministry in the Judean wilderness. 
Uh, we had a picture up there last week of that Judean wilderness, and it's a desolate area. It's not the place that you want to just go and hang out necessarily, especially if you don't like heat, like me. But he was separate from the powers and uh, the, the centers of power in the big cities and the religious institution. And John was out there preaching a message. And his message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And we looked at how John was both, both preacher and prophet. And he even acted in a priestly kind of role as he was baptizing the people and calling them to repentance and standing with them at the moment of decision. He was providing God's people, or he's providing people who were responding with an opportunity to symbolically dedicate themselves to God through this water baptism. And so that's where we're picking up today in chapter three. And today we're gonna cover three points. We don't need those up on the screen just yet, but three points so you know the roadmap. The call to genuine repentance the consequence of fruitlessness, and the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. And we'll take those one at a time in just a moment. The call to genuine repentance, the consequence of fruitlessness, and the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. But before we get into point one, we need a little context to help us going forward in Matthew as we begin to study the next few chapters. So in Judea, at the time of Jesus, there were a couple of prominent groups that had influence, and they were operating there, and they had influence in the political sphere, they had influence in the religious sphere, and in just in the general public mind. And so we'll go ahead and put that slide up there of the different groups. Uh, you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the Essenes, and the Zealots, and you had the Sanhedrin, and so we're going to just do a really quick description on these. So we know these characters that are gonna creep up in the Bible story. Today, two of them show up, Pharisees and Sadducees. So the Pharisees are, were a group, a religious group, and at Jesus' time, they believed in, in the oral tradition as well as the law. So the law of Moses had been handed down and it had been written and it had been communicated to the people, handed to them, throughout time, but along with the law was an oral tradition, and this is where the teachers, kind of like a commentary today, the teachers would read the law, and then they would interpret the law, and their interpretation of the law would get handed down. And that oral law, in conjunction with the law, the Pharisees believed was authoritative, the interpretations of the law, not just the law itself. And I don't know if you guys know anything about commentaries or interpretations of the Bible, but they're a dime a dozen. <laughs> there are lots of them, and you can go all sorts of different directions, and you can imagine that the oral tradition also had its many faults and failures as well. But the Pharisees believed that both of them had a place in their teaching and in their religious experience. And so the Pharisees were strict adherents to the religious law and the rituals and the oral tradition. And they had a strong emphasis on personal piety and prayer. They were kind of the common man's religious people. They were the common man, down, kind of down with the common people. In fact, most of their operations took place um, in the synagogues in the, the small cities and towns throughout the countryside. They weren't really active at the temple worship 
among the priesthood and what was going on up there. They were active in you know, the little towns throughout that had little teaching centers called synagogues where they would go to worship and learn and receive teaching, not just on the law, on the Torah, uh, the, the, the books of, of the Old Testament, but also on uh, the oral tradition where the teacher would hand down these teachings to them. Um, they had a strong influence among the common people and they had a belief uh, in the resurrection of the dead. They believed that the dead would rise. They believed in the existence of angels and spirits. And that's actually gonna become a sticking point or a point of division between them and, uh, and the Sadducees on what they believe. The, they believe in the resurrection. They believe in spirits. They believe in demons. Now, the Sadducees, on the other hand, they were mostly of the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood as laid out in the Old Testament. And therefore, they held a lot of the positions in the temple worship that took place in Jerusalem. They only accepted the law as written down, the law of Moses, and they rejected the oral tradition. They did not follow the oral tradition as handed down. They emphasized the importance of the temple and its rituals, and, and they they ended up holding significant political power as well as religious power. So you can imagine when the religious and the political begin to start to mix, it sounds like a, a history lesson in uh, maybe uh, the medieval times, right? Where political and religious begin to mix and you can imagine all the problems associated with that. The Sadducees denied the resurrection of the dead. They denied angels or spirits or demons that they existed and they were known to the people as collaborating with the Roman authorities and, and that uh, in order to, to keep their influence in the land. And so there was a political element to them. They rubbed shoulders with Rome. Um, I'm gonna leave the other two up there, but we're gonna skip down to the Sanhedrin now. The other two, the Essenes, were a, a breakaway group. They were like, think monks who wanted to escape life and they went out into the wilderness. They would have lived out in the Judean wilderness at the time of John the Baptist's ministry. He might have rubbed shoulders with them. He might have known some of them. But they were all about getting away from established religion and creating a commune out there where they could become pure and holy and worship the Lord separate. So they had really strict purity laws. Uh, they engaged in all sorts of, of things. They, um, they, were, they had very strict observance as well of the festivals. Uh, the Zealots will come in a little bit later in, uh, in one of actually Jesus' disciples uh, was a Zealot. And the Zealots were not necessarily religious at all. The Zealots hated Rome. Imagine you have an occupying force in your country and you want them gone. The Zealots were all about getting Rome out of Judea. And so they opposed the taxation of the Roman authority. Kind of uh, think the, uh, the early day in America tea partiers, right? <laughs> it's like everything was anti-England. Get them out of here. We don't like them. Uh, they engaged, engaged in armed resistance. They took to violence to resist Rome. Um, and any Jewish person that would, would uh, collaborate or sympathize with Rome, they hated. They did not like. That... That's an interesting mix too when you think that Matthew who's writing this is a tax collector or he came out of the life of a tax collector who had collaborated with Rome and one of you know, Jesus' other disciples is a zealot who hates anyone who collaborates and, and thinks of them as having betrayed the people. But finally, we have the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin was a council of Jewish religious leaders. It, think of it as the, the Jewish religious 
uh, Supreme Court. And it had seats for, uh, for a lot of people, 70-ish. And of that 70, you had Pharisees, you had Sadducees who sat on that, and you had the high priest. And it was the final authority. It made all of the religious determinations if there were disputes. And so you'll find through the, the history and through the book of Matthew that we'll encounter the Sanhedrin, we'll encounter Jesus before the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin making determinations. And so that kind of gives us a lay of the land of the players at this time uh, that, that John is encountering, that Jesus will encounter, and that will kind of unfold over the course of that. But it's important to know who they are and why they are the way they are. One of the things that I'll point out about the Pharisees, back to them, we oftentimes, you know, Pharisee is like a bad word, right? <laughs> you don't want to be a Pharisee. Um, but one of the things that is important to remember about the Pharisees is they, their strict adherence and their desire to keep the law and the oral tradition was born out of their desire to keep the land. If you guys remember, there was an exile that took place. And after the exile, they believed that the Pharisees were kind of birthed out of a desire, we will never be exiled again, whatever it takes. If it means that we're gonna adhere to the law, we're gonna make sure the people adhere to the law. If it means that we need to, you know, if the law says this, then we need to keep people as far away from violating the law, so we'll create our own laws to keep them from violating that law, and we'll stack law on top of law on top of law to keep them from violating that, because if they violate that, we're gonna lose the land again. We're gonna be exiled out. And so there was this, this, this heart to, you know, keep the inheritance, to preserve the blessing that God had given, uh, and yet, it was so misguided, as we'll see in the way that it expressed itself in the treatment of people. So, number one this morning, the call to genuine repentance from our scripture. The text begins by saying that the Pharisees and Sadducees come to see this baptism that John is performing. And how does John greet them? You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? It's quite, uh, quite the warm welcome they received from John. Uh, John has seen many people from around Judea come and be baptized, but when the Pharisees and the Sadducees arrive, he calls them a brood of vipers, and I'm sure it's obvious that that's not a term of love or endearment. He's not excited to see his brothers. This is a phrase, and it means that they are concealing malice in their heart. They're concealing malice in their heart. See, they're not coming to John out of pure motives, and he knows it. And so what is John's message to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Not just, you brood of vipers, who warned you, but what does he say to them? What is his instruction? He says to them, basically, live a life that matches your profession. Live a life. If you profess to love God, if you profess to honor God, you profess to be a child of Abraham, a child of the blessing, live a life that is consistent or matches your profession. He says, therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. Produce fruit that's consistent with a life of repentance and a life of faith. And I'll tell you this morning, true repentance is costly, it truly is. The kingdom of God, which is breaking in on the scene here, it demands repentance, and it's a radical decision that is being asked to be made. Now, to the Jew of this time, they believe that all the Jewish people were recipients of God's blessing through Abraham, and that all the Jews had a place in the future kingdom of God, all of them. 
simply because of the blessing handed down through Abraham. The blessing was enough to cover all of the Jews through all time. And it was a given. It was done. Sure, there were, con- there were consequences for their conduct in a temporal fashion, as I talked about before, like exile from the land. They could get removed from God's blessing for a time, but eventually in the future kingdom of God, all the Jews had a place there, and they were going to live out the rest of eternity in the kingdom of God. But John comes, and he challenges them, and he says that presuming on the blessing of God that was given to Abraham could be very deadly for their spiritual life. John says that no lineage, no heritage, and no pedigree will suffice. You must have a personal commitment to join the kingdom by radically reorienting your your life around the king and the kingdom. Your life must match your profession. For us... We might think of things like there was a time in the church, and maybe it still goes on, where the call to Christ was a call to say a sinner's prayer. Say this prayer, and you're saved. And what that left out was the life of faith and repentance that we are to live every day before Christ. I have known people who when asked if they are believers, are you a Christian? They will say, yes, I grew up in a Christian house. Two separate things. (laughs) I have heard others say, yes, I go to church. That's not the question. The question is, does your life match your profession? Sinner's prayer without a life that produces the fruit of repentance has no assurance of salvation. No assurance. You might ask, so what does this fruit look like, this fruit of repentance that's being talked about here? Well, in a parallel passage to today's passage out of Matthew 3, Luke records the same situation, the same incident in Luke chapter 3 as well. And Here's what John says. So John, John is out there, he's preaching this, and, and actually in Luke, instead of highlighting the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Luke says that this was the message John gave to the whole crowd, all the crowds that were coming out. That it seemed that even among the crowd of Pharisees, Sadducees, and everyone else, that there were also other people who were just trying to ride the current religious high. They were trying to get into that next conference, that next worship time that gave them that little religious high boost, and then they could go back to their life doing whatever. And John was saying, who told you to flee from the wrath? Did you even know there was wrath coming? Reminding them of the idea of judgment for a fruitless life. But you might ask, what does this fruit look like? Well, John says in Luke chapter three, as the crowds come to him and they're convicted to the heart, And they say then to John, what should we do then in light of your call to repent and believe and come into the kingdom of God? John replies, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. And then it says, tax collectors also came to John and they were baptized and they said, teacher, what should we do? And he told them, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized to collect. And then it says that some soldiers came to him and said, how about us? What should we do? 
And he said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation. Be satisfied with your own wage. In every case, John, like all the prophets of the old, is, are calling God's people, are calling the people back to God and back to obedience of his word. He's not creating any new rules. It wasn't a new rule that you ought to share. It wasn't a new rule that you ought not to extort people or take more than you were deserved. That you shouldn't steal, in other words. This wasn't a new rule that John was creating. He was calling people back to God's law and calling them to obedience. Repentance always is about, going, uh, is about turning away from living for yourself and turning back to God. Even if you're an atheist and you have never believed in God your entire life and you have always rejected him, you may have denied the reality that he created you. You may deny the eternal qualities of who he is painted all around us in the world. But if, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're awakened to his reality, you will still be turning back to God. He was always there. He was never absent. Just because you didn't believe in him didn't make him not real. Repentance is always turning back to God. It's always turning to God in obedience and away from ourselves. When we lie, when we steal, when we slander, or even when you live a joyless life, you are living a self, in a self-centered orientation. Hear me, even, steal, lie, cheat, murder, or live even a joyless life, you are living in a self-centered orientation instead of out of God's truth and according to his character. Something you'll notice in that passage out of Luke chapter three is that when someone was radically reorienting their life on God through repentance, how did it show up? It showed up in how they treated other people. They didn't extort, they didn't steal, they shared, they gave of their stuff for anyone who was in need. How you treat others, that's an unmistakable fruit of repentance in the life of those who follow God. You can't separate them. Oh, I love God, I obey God, but I don't like people. Later in Matthew, John, uh, Jesus accuses the Pharisees of all kinds of things. And this is, goes to back to why John looked at the Pharisees as they were coming and said, you brood of vipers, I know your heart. Jesus later accuses the Pharisees of greed, of self-indulgence, of neglecting justice and neglecting mercy and, and faithfulness. And he calls them hypocrites. And that even though they, they perfectly obey the law, that they're lawless because they don't honor God in it. They do it as a badge of her honor for themselves. They do it to elevate themselves. John's call is to genuine, verifiable repentance. So I'll ask, what is your life currently oriented around? Are you a self-centered orientation or a kingdom God-centered orientation? Are you ready to respond to the call to genuine repentance? What does the fruit of your life tell you? Not what do you think or what do you say. What does the fruit of your life tell you? Which leads us to point number two, which is 
the consequence of fruitlessness. Verse 10 said that the ax is already at the root of the tree, and therefore every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So what, so what if you say, you know what, no thanks. I, I think I'm good. I, I think I love the way that I've been living. I think I'll stick with my ambitions. I'll stick with my pursuits. I'll stick with my self-indulgence even. I want you to know that Matthew chapter three, verse seven through 12 is full of judgment language. It's full of judgment language. In fact, John, uh, the, John the Baptist seems to be actually drawing on language from another prophet, the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 22 through 24 reads, this, it's a, it's a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah against the nation Egypt for, for all of their sins and their godlessness. And it says, Egypt will hiss like a slithering snake for the army will come or the enemy will come with an army. With axes, they will come against her like those who cut trees. They will cut down her forest. This is the Lord's declaration. Though it is dense, for they are more numerous than locusts. They cannot be counted. Daughter Egypt will be put to shame, handed over to a northern people. If John is drawing on this idea of this prophecy, you can see within that prophecy of Egypt both the imagery of snakes and axes, right? And John said, you brood of vipers. Don't you know the axe is already at the root? In that prophecy that was recorded by Jeremiah, he is saying to Egypt which is this kind of image or this type of that which has rejected God and that which lives godless lives. He's saying to Egypt that an enemy is coming and will cut you down like, a, like, a, um, uh, like an axeman coming to cut through the forest so it will cut you down. This is judgment that is being pronounced on them. It's also interesting that in, in John's words, he says, not that the ax will come and cut the tree down, but that the ax will come and cut it down from where? From the root. In other words, the bad fruit that is coming from the tree, it isn't something that's superficial or simply a bad batch. You know, you ever got something bad from the, the, the grocery store? Oh, that was just a bad batch of something, right? I got it, it was expired or uh, it was moldy or whatever. Oh, just a bad batch, let's go get another one. It, what John is, is trying to get at, it's not just like it's superficial, it's not just a bad batch coming at you. He's saying that the tree that fails to produce good fruit is rotten to the root. The tree that fails to produce good fruit is rotten to the root. Sometimes we we fall into that thinking that, uh, that we are inherently good. You, you ever heard that before? You ever said that to someone? I think people are inherently good. You must be asleep <laughs> if you've ever said that. No. We fall into that thinking. We're inherently good. We're good trees that sometimes do bad things. Sometimes we, we, sit, we just say harmful or angry things. That's not really who I am. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, as he's called, once said, if a man thinks ill of you, 
Don't be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. (laughs) C.S. Lewis also said that no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Right? The Bible tells us that because of rebellion, because Adam and Eve, but replicated over and over again with all who followed, including you and I, that we are corrupted. We are seriously disfigured at a moral level. We are not able in and of ourselves to do good. We are not able to produce good fruit because we all are rotten to the root. And the root of our tree does not draw on pure spiritual life, but on fleshly desires and self-centered living. That's the reality in and of ourselves. Only the root that draws on the true, good, spiritual life of God, only that tree can produce good fruit. With Adam and Eve in the garden prior to the fall, they could eat of the tree of life and what? They lived. They were not at odds with God. They were not in rebellion. They were not rejected or unable to be in his presence because they were eating of the tree provided by him of life and receiving his life. But because of the fall and because of rebellion multiplied over and over again in our lives and everyone around us, we no longer draw on that spiritual life and therefore our tree, the metaphor of our life, cannot produce good fruit. And John's ministry began because he, he knew that one was coming after him who had the answer to that. Someone was coming after him who had the solution to fix that problem. And so he was calling people. You remember John's mission to prepare the way. He was calling people back to God and to God's law But God's law was external to them. It was outside of them. And so it was a way for them to get ready. Come back to God's law. Um, Elsewhere in the New Testament, we are told that the, the, the law was kind of like a babysitter. It was like a nanny or a guardian. It could watch over us for a little while. We kept breaking it over and over again. But it could keep us in a place where we were ready and receptive when the word of God came for us to believe and trust. And so we were moved, John came to move people's hearts toward God, turn them toward Messiah, so that when Messiah came, he could fix this problem of the dirt, of the corrupted root. Is there something he could do that could fix the underlying issue of our wicked hearts? Only Messiah could turn away the wrath and judgment of God. Which brings us to point number three, the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. John is continuing in these verses his mission to prepare the way. And the work that John was called to do was all about preparation. 
He was not an end unto himself. He was not going to become a rising superstar. He wasn't gonna have you know, a, a, an arena tour where he could go around with the hottest worship band and preach his message to thousands and thousands of people. He had one point, prepare the way for Messiah. And he says that the one who's coming after me will be wholly different, completely different. His work, the one who is to come, will be marked by supernatural power. See, John's baptism was just symbolic. It was a decision of man to turn them, their face back to God, but it wasn't effectual. It didn't do anything in you. It was an act. It was symbolic, but it didn't do. It didn't cause an effect within you. And the difference between John and this one that was to come who would be great, uh, as John is kind of spelling this out, he actually uses this idea of removing sandals to illustrate it. It's kind of an interesting image, probably one that's lost on us, maybe a little bit. My wife would never remove my sandals. (laughs) But uh, in his day, a disciple or a follower of a rabbi was expected to act like a slave to the rabbi. He was expected to. The rabbi was his master, he was learning and following, he was an apprentice, and he was expected to act in every way in service of the master. All his life was dedicated. He left everything behind to follow the master and learn from him. But there was one thing that the master could not require him to do. Could not require him. Could not require him to take off his sandals. They're that nasty and gross. However, John says, I'm not even worthy to do that for Jesus. I'm not even worthy to do the work that only a true slave, not even a disciple or follower could do. I'm not worthy to do that. The one who comes after is so much greater. This is John, the greatest man born of woman up till that point. And he did not consider himself worthy to be the slave of Messiah. So what is the power of this one to come? What will he do that will be so radically different and superior to John's ministry? John says that his baptism is symbolic and it symbolizes a desire to return back to God and prepare God's people, prepare a citizenship, a people for the eternal kingdom. It's, It's making preparations. But the one to come, his baptism would be one of spirit which is a reconnection to the life of God. Think back to the Garden of Eden when they could eat freely of the fruit of life. A baptism of the Spirit is a reconnection to that that power and that life and fire, a purifying force that will remove anything that is corrupt or worthless and produce concentrated good. A baptism of Spirit and fire. John's baptism was one uh, that was of piety and about one's dedication and decision to follow God and prepare for his kingdom. It was man making a move toward God, right? But he was unable to go all the way. That was John's baptism. But the one to come would baptize in the power of the Spirit and for true and complete purification. This was God making a move toward man, closing the gap, so that his life and spirit would, not, uh, would dwell in the hearts of man. This is the ultimate experience of God with us. 
his Holy Spirit within us. And this too was promised before in Ezekiel chapter 36, where it said, for I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe uh, my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will summon the grain and make it plentiful. I will not bring famine on you. I will also make the fruit of the trees and the produce of the field plentiful so that you will no longer experience reproach among the nations on account of famine. It's not that you must try really hard to be clean, but God will sprinkle you clean and you will be clean. A new heart and a new spirit within Instead of one that's inclined toward rebellion and self-centeredness, one that is oriented toward obeying God, loving God as their God, and being his people. A new heart and a new spirit that produces the fruit of righteousness, and it's caused to grow, not because of your goodness or your effort, because God causes it to grow. God is the source. The taproot isn't drawing on sin-filled inclinations and from a corrupt heart anymore. It is a new heart given to you to love God. In John's wording, there's also the idea of fire and purification. And purification always includes separation. It always includes separation. For something like metal to be pure, it has to be heated to a point where the impurities separated out and they must be scraped off or removed. And what is left is a more pure form of that metal. Purification always in includes a separation. The invitation is this, receive what is freely offered in Christ, a new heart and a new spirit to be a part of a new humanity with a new love for God. All of our efforts to try to do that when our root is tapped in to our sinful inclination and our corrupt heart will always fail. The Pharisees are good examples of that. So driven to try to do it out of their own wisdom, their own heart, and so missing the mark. But we are invited, as, as, uh, as Ezekiel has laid out, to receive from God the new heart, even the fruit of the land that is born. What does it say? It says, I will make the fruit of the trees and produce the produce of the field plentiful. God will make it grow. God will make it pure. God will restore it. Tim Keller once said, uh, Tim, Pastor Tim Keller, he recently passed away from uh, pancreatic cancer, 
fantastic uh, teacher of the word and someone who was really uh, instrumental in, in my own uh, spiritual walk. He, he was often quoted as saying, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. You and I are invited to a life of fruitfulness, not fruitlessness, through repentance and faith in the work of Christ Jesus. And there you can find love and acceptance that is greater than you ever dared hope for and freedom from a life that's marred by sin and corruption into a life that is connected to the source of life through the Holy Spirit within. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would cause it to grow in us. Greater, Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here who is moved, Lord, by your word toward uh, receiving this new life in Christ, I pray that they would not stop until they have responded and begun the journey of living the life of faith and repentance before God who accepts them and wants to love them. I pray your love and your spirit dwell in our hearts richly. In Jesus' name, amen.